So for those who don't know her, Steph Hare is a very smart person who has a new book out called Technology is Not Neutral, A Short Guide to Technology Ethics. I just wanted to have you on. I loved your book. I learned a ton, especially now that I live in London, because so much of it was about the frightening state of surveillance in London. And so I thought just to start, we could talk a little bit about what got you interested in ethics and technology, and also why you chose to take a stance in the title of your book. Yes. Um, the easy one is the why I chose to take a stance in the title of the book, which was just simply that it drives me nuts to sit in on conversations where you tackle a really tough topic, and at the end, the thinker or speaker or writer kind of just goes, it's just really complicated. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I know, but some of us have to make decisions based on your insights. I want actionable insights. What do I need to do? Like, do I build this tool or not? Do I invest in it or not? Should I use it or not? Um, or buy it or not as a consumer? So I wanted to push myself to get off the fence about the question, is technology neutral? And take a stand. And I also just thought that um, if anyone disagreed with me, they would have to still write in their review my argument every time they critiqued the book by having to name the title. So it was also a bit of a, a little in, immature writerly joke on my part. But it was genuinely, it was to force myself to say, you know, if you had 30 seconds to say what the argument of your book was before you disappear forever, this is it. You shouldn't have to read the book to know what it's about. You, you now know. Yeah. And then why did I get into it? That's more complicated, um, mainly just because I'm so old. <laughs> I've worked in technology for a really long time, starting in 2000, and also worked around it, by which I mean working on political risk and sovereign debt crises and cybersecurity issues, um, approaching it from a really different perspective than many people who work in technology, which was like securing data, but also questions of national security and the like interest me a lot. And obviously being American, you cannot help if you've grown up during the dot-com era and then watch the rise of the big tech technology giants. That's part of like a national story for us as Americans and for my generation. We watched those companies go from being little startups to being now like behemoths that everybody loves to criticize um, fairly and unfairly as it happens. So that kind of, that story that was happening as a sort of national story and a sector story was also happening as my career was developing. So I watched a lot of that and it interested me. And what I can report um, from that experience is that we never talked about technology ethics at all when I started out. It just was not on the radar. It wasn't in any of our training. I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which has a superb computer engineering and computer science program and I'm sure it was being discussed in like the science and technology studies courses or the digital humanities courses, but I never had to take those. And none of my friends did who all were computer science graduates. I was the sort of freakish person studying French, but I hung out with lots of engineers. Yeah, a lot of our education is very siloed. Exactly. You have to study um, you know, math and science to a quite mm. advanced level in the US, even if you are doing a, a humanities degree, unlike here in the United Kingdom, where if you wanted to study French at uni, you would never, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation um, because you would just never study it. But I did, and it wasn't there. 
and it wasn't in any of the companies I worked in, including all the way up until my last employer that I was working for before I went independent, which was in 2017 to 2018. So, you know, this was why I kind of left and decided to go on my own was, I think part of the problem when you are working on technology ethics in a company or as a civil servant, if you're doing this on behalf of your government, is you are either signing NDAs, so you're not legally allowed to discuss the stuff you're seeing, or as a civil servant, you've got a civil servant code that is, again, forbidding you from, you know, you'd be taking a massive risk. You'd have to whistleblow effectively. So by being Mm -hmm. an independent researcher and broadcaster, I was able to do a lot more of the work I wanted to do, which was effectively raising awareness to the public and helping to build the public's knowledge of things that were happening. And that's what the book sort of came out of and then got this offer to write it. And we published it in February and now it's an audiobook as well. And I think this is a good opportunity for you to introduce yourself properly because I called you a very smart person, which is true, but you do have like a proper title. Yeah, well, I'm Dr. Stephanie Hare. Uh, so I'm an independent researcher and I'm a broadcaster. And now I'm an author of this book, um, Technology is Not Neutral, A Short Guide to Technology Ethics. The research side is something I've been doing for a really long time. I trained as an academic. So I did my master's and PhD here at the London School of Economics. And I was a fellow at St. Anthony's College, Oxford after that. And then in parallel, when I wasn't doing a degree or teaching and doing my field work, I was having this career in technology or working, doing political risk analysis and then back in technology again. So I've worked mainly for American companies, but always in Europe which has led to a different perspective. I would say that Mm -hmm. Western Europe is the region I am most an expert in, along with the United States, obviously. Um, But always, always looking at how those two regions interact amongst themselves and then with the rest of the world. And that's the thing about technology is it's such a global force that um, there will be no shortage of problems to work on. So as you noted, the book has a lot of British case studies And I really wanted to highlight that because, again, I sometimes feel like we hear the same stories over and over again. It's very easy to focus on stuff in the United States. Um, If somebody wants to get really exotic, they might mention China and the U.S. tech Cold War, but it's often parsed through a U.S. lens. And I'm really interested in what's happening here in Europe with the European Union and specifically here with the United Kingdom now that it's left Brexit um, and what we can learn from the U.K., which is... You know, it's part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Partnership. It's part of NATO. It used to be part of the EU. It's got its own Commonwealth thing going on. Um, It might lose Scotland again if Scotland votes independent. So, like, there's just a lot happening here. And then what's really interesting, it's a liberal democracy. But as you noted, it's one of the most heavily surveyed countries in the world. So that's weird. Um, So that, like, felt like it had to be a topic in its own right. So I feel like we're really starting to set up your book and... One concept that you bring up later in the book, but I think might be helpful for people as sort of a framework, is you talk about the concept of a wicked problem and Mm. why tech ethics is a wicked problem. Um, Could you briefly describe that for people? Yeah, so there's like linear, easy, straightforward problems, just like one plus one, or like how do I make brownies, right? So I can like go and get some ingredients and follow a set of steps and like magic, 40 minutes later, you have brownies. And people have replicated the brownie experiment all over the world um, with variations, and, and we recognize what brownies are, and we have solved the brownie problem. 
by contrast, wicked problems would be something like the pandemic or loss of biodiversity and climate change, which is they have many causes. So you can't just like isolate one cause and then tackle that problem. It's going to have many causes. And even in the act of trying to solve the problems of the pandemic or climate change, you will end up creating even more problems. Um, they can't, they're problems that can't be solved by like traditional, conventional, linear methods. And they're never really solved. They're better, you know, so it's more of a, <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't translate well to binary thinking like zeros and ones, which is what we think of with technology. Wicked problems are going to be more like, is the pandemic ebbing? Is it becoming endemic? Are we able to live with it? Um, so people might, we might have high cases, but we are having fewer deaths and hospitalizations. And then we have to look at long COVID. So we want to solve that problem. So it's just, how do we get it where eventually having COVID is kind of like having a common cold? Mm-hmm. That would be kind of the goal of success. Mm-hmm. That's how you would define solving that, I guess. Much less, you know, eradication is very, very rare in medicine. So it's a bit like that really where technology ethics is like, well, what is the problem we're even trying to solve with that? Like who's ethics? Who defines what is ethical in technology? Like maybe China thinks what it's doing in terms of surveying its population and locking people up in camps in the West of the country is like totally fine by their ethical system. Well, and I think part of the problem is, as you get to in the book is that there isn't really one person or one organization or one system set up to deal with these questions. Yeah. I mean, exactly. So who's your ethical authority? You know, even if you step away from technology and just go, who's your authority on ethics in a, in a given society? Mm. You know, is it God? Is it Congress? Is it like your democratically elected representatives? Is it, you know, parents or teachers? Or is it the individual? Or is it the collective? And, you know, people have been reckoning with ethics for thousands of years. So then... Mm-hmm. That's, you know, without even putting technology on it, then graft technology on it or merge technology with it. It's like, oh, my God, it's a whole other wicked problem, Mm -hmm. which is technology already poses all sorts of problems requiring solutions. Ethics Mm -hmm. is the same. Merge them together into a Venn diagram and you're going to have a migraine. But you're also going to have a really rewarding conversation and career because, you know, these are never going away. (laughs) True. I mean, and I think a great area of overlap between your work and then what I write about a lot, which is startups in the gig economy, is starting to look at how ethics or a lack thereof gets created through sort of the venture capital startup ecosystem. So at some point in your book, you break down the stages these products and services go through from sort of idea to creation. And you make the good point that at each stage, there's a chance for various people and stakeholders to weigh in and give feedback on ethical concerns. And you say that tech ethics should be on the risk radar of anyone who funds the creation and deployment of technology. But I think what we often see in practice is that ethics either aren't a priority Uh, especially for early stage startups, which are hustling and trying to sort of scale and grow. Or when they do come up, they're often in conflict with the chance to make a lot of money. So that's the interesting thing is like, where does ethics enter the system between idea and execution and, you know, rollout of product or service? So first of all, it could be baked in at any point. And I think the argument would be you'd want to bring it in as early as you can. First of all, just it'll save you 
you know, headaches in the long run, if you can use ethical thinking as a way of mitigating risk. But second, it could actually become a selling point. So if you are able to do to do ethics, to do technology ethics early and bake that into your strategy and how you're talking to investors and how you're hiring people or bringing people in um, and how you tell your story to the market, there is such an appetite for that because I think people have really matured and grown up, I would say really since 2016 when we had the, you know, it wasn't just the Edward Snowden revelations but prior to that, it was also the Cambridge Analytica Facebook story that led to surveillance capitalism the book by Shoshana Zuboff and many, many more, where people suddenly understood, my God, I am someone who generates data. There's a data trail all about me. There's like a shadow profile about me and other people are making money or weaponizing it against me or against my society. What do I need to do? So anyone who can meet that pain point and take the pain away and be like, let me offer you some reassurance or you will always be in control of your data. You have rights over your data. That becomes really sexy. And we saw that when Apple, of course, changed the way that it was doing its default settings on its app store. Suddenly, most people were choosing privacy when given the choice. Very few people were choosing to be surveyed by our friends at Facebook and Google. So it just showed you when people were saying people don't care about privacy. It wasn't necessarily true. It was that they just hadn't had the chance to exercise that choice. Well, and we, we make privacy very hard to access. I mean, in a variety of ways from terms and conditions that you have to accept to use the surface, but are too long for anyone to plausibly read to, you know, even in the EU where there's much stricter privacy rules and with, you know, um, data, you, everyone knows you go to a website and you get the pop-up saying, do you want the trackers? But it's so Sorry. annoying, right? <laughs> it's, it's a question of, is it the right solution to the problem because it's just not, it's not feasible even for someone who is concerned about privacy to always be going through and disabling all the trackers every time. I mean, who has the time for or the energy? And there's the whole thing of like, the consent model is also broken. We should just have certain things that are just like not allowed. And I think what's really frustrating for a lot of people who work in technology ethics is like, it isn't a question of, there are these problems, what should we do about it? Like loads of people have named what the problems are and what needs to be done about it. And then it falls down because it's kind of like, well, who is going to take out the third party data broker model, which everyone agrees is an absolute dumpster fire for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I'm not saying anything that's particularly revolutionary here. You know, even Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook at Apple have said, we need to get rid of third-party data brokers. But who's the we? Is that, you know, Congress? Um, you know, the European Parliament? Why are they not doing it? And obviously, like, protections, again, for kids, which, again, is a huge market in terms of technology ethics. If you can actually do something that makes it where kids can be online safely and that reassures parents and teachers, you're going to laugh all the way to the bank. But right now, nobody trusts anyone mm -hmm. who's doing anything with kids because we constantly hear about abuses. Sorry, so it's terrible. So I think it's that. It's kind of like understanding that the earlier you can bring this kind of thinking into your product or service development, it's going to be mm -hmm. an advantage for you. It will only help you. It's never a case of like, mm, we can either do ethics or make more money. It's like, no, doing ethics could be part of you making more money. Yeah, I mean, let's hope more people start to think like that. Um, one place also where we overlap is, you know, I read a lot about the gig economy and you write a lot about surveillance and facial recognition. And we've seen these two things um, sort of come together a lot with the monitoring of low wage workers. 
So in your book, you use the example of Uber storing face biometrics on drivers at sign up and then asking them to take selfies at the start of their work shifts to verify their identities. Um, Amazon uses a similar selfie based login for delivery workers and then has even more intrusive monitoring tactics like AI powered cameras in its delivery vehicles. Uh, there was a report earlier this year that Clearview, Clearview AI, which is an especially aggressive and questionably legal AI company, was marketing its products specifically to gig companies. So I just wonder what you think we should think about these aggressive and invasive methods of monitoring low-wage workers, especially when these are people in the gig economy who are purportedly independent, you know, in quotes, in their work life. I mean, it drives me insane. I think. I think we have to literally completely rethink workers' rights and trade unions, which seem to be very silent on a lot of this. Um, and being an independent worker, not having union protections, like what does that mean as well? Like what's the relationship between these new jobs and unionizing to have that? But again, our lawmakers don't seem to be at all aware of this and the unfairness of it. And if anything, um, I would love to see more monitoring of, you know, people in government and positions of quite senior power where when they are abusing their power and privileges, CEOs, senior executives and the like, they can take out entire industries. And that's mm. just me talking from having lived through the financial crisis and covered all of that. Um, we're watching like VW with the way that their engineers were gaming their emissions. That's stuff that you know can have life or death consequences for people to say nothing of fiduciary uh, criminal liability. I was going to say, to, to simplify it even further, I guess a question I had and thought about after reading that section of your book was, um, can anyone be independent? Does it matter if you can set your own hours, if your data privacy, your face, your biometrics are no longer your own? Like, why, why is that independence? I mean, arguably, no. And you're, you're right to raise that point, because again, it's it's only, it's, I sometimes feel like the way that sometimes companies use, use technologies, they pick off workers like group by group. So again, if you're in a company or in an existence professionally where this isn't affecting you yet, you probably don't care. And then if it is affecting you, maybe you're having to work so hard and hustle right now that like standing up for your privacy and human rights and civil liberties in the workplace is unfortunately number you know 2000 on your list of things to do today. So it's the whole question of like, whose job is it to be looking after this and thinking about it and going, we are having a group of people whose entire work environment has changed and that's actually affecting workers' rights, human rights, blah, blah, blah. What does that mean? And what does that mean? Yes, for this question of independence and who's being surveyed because it, that surveillance, you know, it's not equal mm -hmm. opportunity surveillance. It's It's like police use it on the rest of society, workers use it, or work, employers are using it on some workers increasingly mm -hmm. more. Um, and obviously like what you're doing at home or in your car or your van can be surveyed in a different way than if you're on a physical premise of an office or a shop, right? So, or hospital. So it's that whole thing of like mm -hmm. safe spaces from surveillance versus not. And it's very, very blurry and no one seems to be really looking at it yet. So I think mm -hmm. it's a massive future piece of work for regulators, lawmakers and the like. And it goes back again to what you were saying about choice and false choice, because if the option is provide a selfie, work and get paid, or don't provide a selfie, don't work and don't get paid, that's not really a choice, is it? 
no, it's not a choice at all. And, you know, leaving it down to like the good people of the ACLU in the United States or like Liberty and Big Brother here in the United Kingdom to like fight those good fights. It just makes you wonder, again, what are our elected lawmakers working on? Because this is affecting you know millions of people. This is not some sort of niche mm-hmm, area mm-hmm. of interest. It's important and it's it's only going to be the future and we don't seem to have clarity about it. So do workers even know what their rights are? And that was the whole thing is this technology was supposed to come in and it's often presented as a voluntary thing first where you can choose to do this or you can use you know old school options to prove your ID or clock in or whatever. And at a certain point, a line gets crossed and it's no longer voluntary, it's mandatory. And now it's not a choice anymore. I want to talk a bit more about Clearview AI. So for those who aren't familiar, it's this AI company which has reportedly harvested more than 20 billion with a B facial images worldwide. Um, Its methods of doing this are controversial. It's unclear whether it's always had permission. In fact, a lot of people think it hasn't had permission (laughs) to take a lot of these images and put them in its database. Um, The UK data privacy regulator, the ICO, just fined them 7.5 million pounds for illegally storing facial images, Um, which on the one hand seems seems good. It seems like, you know, regulators doing what they're supposed to. On the other hand, it's a lot less than the 17 million pounds the ICO had initially threatened um, late last year. And what I really want to focus on with that background is what the CEO said in response to the ICO fine. He said, um, and I'm quoting, I am deeply disappointed that the UK information commissioner has misinterpreted my technology and intentions. I am disheartened by the misinterpretation of Clearview AI's technology to society. So I just wanna sit with that a minute because I think this hits squarely at the problem of technology ethics. And I just would love you know, your thoughts on how else we are supposed to even interpret Clearview's quote-unquote intentions of its technology with what they're mm. actually doing and <laughs> where that quote from its CEO is even coming from. Well, it's also weird because the way that Clearview has built up its database of facial images is by scraping the internet. So it's taken probably the face of everybody who's listening, because I'm going to guess that most of us are online in at least some way. So from LinkedIn to Twitter to Facebook to any online photo albums you have, and you might not have put those photos up yourself. You might just be in someone else's photo, tagged or untagged, it will find you. And this is the controversial bit. Exactly. They've done that without your knowledge, without your consent. You're not getting, you know, a piece of that sweet action um, in terms of money, right? Like you probably didn't even know about it. It's like, and then then there's a question of like, well, suppose you're uncomfortable. How do you go to Clearview AI and go, A, I'd like to find out if I'm in your database and B, if I am, I would like to be removed. Um, at which point it actually starts to become irrelevant because they've built the tool now, like they, it's too late. You're kind of carefully locking the stable door after the horse has bolted the tool has been built so even if they were to have you know removed some of our data at this point if someone were to request it it can now be used and it is indeed being used and it's being used largely by u.s law enforcement at the federal state and municipal level um clearview has also given its tool for free to Ukraine, which has been using it to identify dead and living Russian soldiers, and then posting pictures of those dead soldiers onto social media so that Russian families would find out about it. Um, they say that's to you know establish ground truth and fight 
misinformation. But the fact of the matter is, is Clearview AI has taken everybody's faces and it's now being used as a weapon of war mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. law enforcement, which if you didn't consent to that, or if you have a problem with that in any way, shape or form, the answer is kind of well too bad. So lots of regulators around the world, you've mentioned the UK, which just this week issued its fine notice, but many others have Canada, Australia, lots of them in the European Union, and have said, you know, you're, we're not only fining you, you have to delete all of the data. So again, great, but it's being used in the US and the US has been challenged quite a lot. And now it's only supposed to be used by law enforcement. It was being used by private companies. I happen to come from the state of Illinois, which has, I'm delighted to share this good news with you for fellow Illinoisans, the strongest biometric protections of anywhere in the nation. Wow, amazing. I know. The Biometric Information Protection Act um, of 2006 was a groundbreaking piece of legislation, and it makes companies like Facebook and Google sort of shake in their boots. It's empowered the ACLU to file lawsuits, and Clearview AI just sort of ran away from the state of Illinois because it's just not worth it. Why, not to interrupt you, but if if IPA is so great and has been around since 2006, why haven't we seen other sort of forward-thinking states copy that model? So a couple have been doing a little bit of work on biometrics protection. Texas is certainly one of them. And there's a few others that will do it, private sector only, but not law enforcement, children only, but not adults, that sort of thing. So again, because it's the United States, it's a massive hodgepodge, uh, melting pot of different protections or lack thereof. Honestly, I think a lot of people were just Mm. asleep at the wheel. (laughs) Like, you know, if you look back in 2006, we were only a few years after 9-11. Biometrics technology was being used by the United States military and other NATO powers in Iraq and Afghanistan to great effect Um, from the U.S. and NATO perspective, by the way, to great effect. I'm not sure the people it was being used on would describe it that way. And then... We went into the financial crisis from 2008. It's been a, basically a dumpster fire ever since. We've had a pandemic. We're in another war. Um, you know, we've had crazy presidential elections and the like. People were really worried about data online and not thinking about body data, of face, voice, fingerprints, all of that stuff. And most people's experience with it is just like face ID mm-hmm. to unlock their phone or to unlock their phone with a fingerprint. They don't realize that they can be surveyed in real time. What happens then is they say nothing to hide, nothing Mm -hmm. to fear. Most people put all their stuff online anyways, or your phones are tracking you 24-7, so we don't have privacy anyhow. I've heard all of these arguments. So I think that is why, for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. they just didn't get it. And I think they will start to get it more and more. Clearview AI has really freaked a lot of people out because they basically had their investor deck leaked to the Washington Post in February, which which said by the end of this year, we'll be able to identify every single person on earth. Yes, that's the same report I was alluding to where they talked about pitching their software specifically to gig companies to quote unquote revolutionize uh, the hiring of gig workers. Yeah, and like, and that's the thing is like, To go back to the original point you said of like, let's sit with this CEO's um, remarks where he just feels really misunderstood. Well, his story changes all the time. So like sometimes he just wants to help the military and the police to fight crime and like keep the world safe. But other times he wants to revolutionize private sector work. Um, I think basically he'll sell to whoever it is that he he could um, within his own his own views, which is you know, totally his right. But the point is like he did it. He's built his tool off the back of other people's data. And it's their body data, right? So this is more than just like, do you like coffee versus tea? 
you know, like it on Facebook. Right. You say you say in your book, you can leave your phone at home, but you can't leave your face. Yeah. And also it's not just about you. Like it even gets to your DNA, which starts to be about your family. So the world of biometrics technology is fascinating. It's one of my absolute passions of research, but it like, it absolutely would have to be put into the same category as like AI warfare technology or anything to do with like genetics and like genomic engineering. Like this is experimental emerging technology that could have very serious impacts on people. No one is thinking this through, except obviously the good people of Illinois, <laughs> whose lawmakers shockingly <laughs> drafted an amazing law, um, which I think everybody else is kind of looking at. I think this is a good transition to my second to last question for you, which is, um, you know, how much of the problem with regulating these issues, we, we talked about that it's a wicked problem and it's very complicated, but also sort of the striking lack of regulation. How much of that do you think is our elected officials or our the people responsible with the power to deal with this, just not understanding the tech enough. Like, you know, we've, we've all seen the footage of congressional debates where you have lawmakers who don't, they like don't know what Twitter is. So yeah. how do you expect these people to, to understand like fast changing facial recognition technology and, and big data and all these things? I mean, I am available if our friends in Congress would like somebody <laughs> to come in and do a tutorial. And indeed, as you know, in the book, there are, in fact, several scholars in the U.S. who have done that and who have explained how facial recognition works. So like the ignorance excuse, I think, was more valid, probably again around 2016, where, again, people just didn't seem to get it. I think really now what's encouraging in the one sense is like it really is on the front page of the new york times and the washington post and like on your television podcast and radio um and it's in increasing numbers of books so lawmakers really should know um i can report that i will be presenting to the all-party parliamentary group on the 4th of july here in the united kingdom at the house of lords um open to the public uh, which i'm really happy to you know send you notes afterwards but I will be talking about this to UK lawmakers who, to be fair, have had many people discuss this with them before. So it's it's not an ignorance thing. It's a priorities thing. And also, as we just discussed with the Clearview decision here in the UK, the regulator could have fined Clearview the full amount of 17 million. And instead, it gave them a 10 million pound discount and only found them you know, 7.8 million pounds. And it's like, why? The regulator should be hitting these companies with a full force of the law. Like what, why are they pulling their punches? And they do this all the time. And then these companies price that in, they're happy to be fined. Well, it's just a cost of doing business, right? When you, this is what we see with antitrust also, right? Like when you make money at the rate that a Google or an Amazon does, it doesn't matter how big the fine is. You make the fine up in a couple of days and then it just facilitates your business. Yeah. I mean, somebody needs to write something beautiful and I want to read it. It's I'm not the person to write it, but I'm desperate to read it to go like our regulation models are like from the 1950s or maybe the 1980s tops. <laughs> like they don't seem fit for purpose and not for technology at all. They were designed for like companies and banks. They don't make any sense for this type of technology and these companies that we're seeing that are global money minting factories. And they're happy to pay those fines, in which case why wouldn't you, if you were them, you would take data and build whatever the hell you want with it and just pay it and kind of be like, who cares? So I don't know how the regulators feel about this. And I don't know how the lawmakers feel about this. And I think the public is just kind of exhausted and frankly has so many other things on their plate that 
there's an exhaustion factor of nobody knows really where to start to solve this problem. But I think looking at how do you have a regulator that's fit for purpose? How do you have laws that are fit for purpose? And how do you do enforcement? You can have all the great laws you want. GDPR is a great example of that. It's not enforced enough. So that then creates bad faith among people. And so just, I think, to bring it back to sort of where we started, um, you know, what, what role could a technology ethicist have sort of on a systematic level to start to address some of these issues? So there's like internal and external. So I think if you are a technology ethicist working within a company or companies, um, ditto in government, if you're working in the civil service, there's a lot of technology ethicists working in government now, which is very exciting, or advising lawmakers, advising regulators, that sort of thing. You can actually make a huge difference. And you might not even call yourself a technology ethicist, by the way. You might be a data scientist or a software developer or a strategist. Um, you might, you know, you won't necessarily be just working in like the legal and compliance teams of these places. You could be the person who's scoping out problems and deciding what are we going to work on and how are we going to do it? What's in scope and out of scope and all of that. As a journalist, you will have an incredibly important role if you are a reporter or an editor who's deciding, are we going to focus on biometrics and alert the public or not? Are we going to help people so that they understand how to protect themselves and make better consumer choices or really hold certain companies' feet to the fire? or not. Um, that's massive because a lot of it's, I think it's almost like with public health, you have to build people's base of knowledge first so that they are even receptive to the arguments and choices that will then be put in front of them. But if you don't build that, that knowledge basis, they don't even know where to get started on that. Unless you're working in the sector, you don't know because none of us can know everything. So I reckon it's, you, it's almost like you cannot but make a difference as a technology ethicist. Like, don't worry about that part. Just pick a problem and go at it with hammer and tongs. <laughs> There's so many problems to solve. Just go.